Eternal Kingdom, Chapter 3 Ruth flipped impatiently between two channels. She hated to be kept waiting. Somewhere between the 15th analysis and sports highlight playback, the knock came at the door. Micah let himself in. You're late. Have you any idea how much I hate to wait? Ruth hissed. Unlike you, I haven't millions to sit upon, cashing in on the mysterious deaths of my dead husbands every decade or so. I have to keep human hours in order to remain employed, and I don't normally meet clients in the middle of the night. Ruth turned the volume down and set the remote on the designer ottoman. Micah was taken aback as she stood. She was wearing a long lace gown, a far cry from her leather coat and pants that she wore for council meetings. Micah wondered if it was custom made for her as you could see through the lace pattern and it seemed to reveal, as well as conceal, just the right amount of her porcelain skin. Is that what I am? A client? Ruth smirked. And we both know this is exactly the kind of hours you keep. No one honest ever launders money or evades taxes by day, she mused. That's how I was elected to the council, wasn't it? A vampire who happens to have found his way into the human world as an accountant, tied to the most prestigious banking firm in the country. I'm a man with no political ambitions, and yet suddenly I get summoned and elected to the council. I assume I've already been tapped for my connections, Mike surmised dryly. Well, I would beg to differ. I think you underestimate your talents. I know potential when I see it, which is why I persuaded the other members. So... The council doesn't want something from me. You do. Micah said it, trying to exude confidence. Truthfully, he had never been this close to such a beautiful woman. Becoming a vampire may have given him immortality, but it certainly hadn't made him handsome. He was lucky to screw an occasional ambitious intern at the office. Women of power or wealth rarely gave him a second glance. I would like to think that my helping hand up to a place of power makes us... Friends. She wiped her bottom lip with a red-polished fingertip. Micah noted that the shade matched her hair nearly perfectly. He was in way over his head, and sadly, he kind of liked it. And friends help one another, right? Asked Micah, unable to hide his sarcasm. Ruth smiled. I do find cleverness extremely attractive. She took her finger from her lip and ran it down his tie. Yes, I need a favor, but it's not for me. It's more well for the game. I know that Jeremiah is working with the other councils on compiling a list of prisoners to play the vampire side, but I would like to use this act of, of goodwill to restore some of the confidence to the powers that be. What powers that be? What are we talking about? Micah asked, confused and beginning to get nervous. Rarely did Ruth ever beat around the bush, and he felt like she was testing him. You honestly don't believe that vampires have remained the topic of myth and entertainment for hundreds of years, merely by chance, do you? There is a strong and confidential alliance between governments, private groups, anonymous individuals, who help to keep vampires from being in the mainstream reality of society's conscience. Lately, that alliance has been skating on thin ice, I would like to restore their confidence. You need money, Micah guessed. Ruth laughed. Your sex appeal is waning. You're going to have to think on a grander scale if you want my affections and my loyalty. Micah tried to unscramble his thoughts. He was too busy thinking about her affections. 
He thought about denying his attraction to her, but it was ridiculous. Micah asked himself what was better than money. You want power, but how can I deliver from where I'm standing? Ruth turned up the volume on the remote as the anchor elaborated on the close-up of a handsome human man. I need a hero. I need someone the human world can cheer for and believe in against all odds. Ruth handed Micah a cell phone. Use this cell phone exclusively to contact only me. I've booked your flight to Auckland. His manager's name is Ray. Micah stared at the screen, listening to the commentary. He turned to Ruth, staring at her incredulously. How do I convince an all-star athlete to commit suicide? Micah asked, exasperated at the impossible prospect. You are a numbers man. It's a gamble, but a calculated risk in our favor. If by some miracle the human team can find a chess master better than Cadell and they win, I'll personally convert the survivors myself. What are you saying? Micah shouted. We can't offer that. Jeremiah will never approve. There must be some law. Ruth objected. What rule? Tell me. Why can't we offer the ultimate prize, immortal life to any human willing to risk death in a human-sized game of chess between two masters? Ruth's eyes blazed with anticipation. There was excitement in the high-stakes odds. In her red-eyed fury, she twisted Micah's tie into a slipknot noose. It wasn't a death threat, but he certainly could see that she had recently fed, and by the strength of her grip, the victim had been young. Her strength was far superior to his. He could see that she was struggling to control her rage as she bared her teeth. What that old fool Jeremiah doesn't know won't hurt him, and once the deal is set in place, you and I will vote him out. Isn't that right? Micah squeaked, Yes. Ruth instantly released him when he gave the answer that she wanted to hear. Now go, or you'll miss your flight, and don't come back until you have Robbie Davies under locked contract. The humans need a king, and they shall have one for whom they can devote their loyalties. Micah left Ruth's penthouse with what little dignity he had left intact. Ruth studied a model board and pieces of the game. She placed the king for the white side in the center. With Davies' fate sealed, it was time to call a different kind of hero a leader of convicts, a commander that the undead could respect and follow. James was unrecognizable when the guards threw him at her feet. The captain reported that in his bereavement, James spent days ceaselessly throwing himself at the solar-powered bars of his cell. Every square inch of his body was charred, including his face. His hands were deteriorating, and his fingers were curled, becoming disfigured. His botched-up suicide proved his naivety about being a vampire and would take a proper feed to correct before Ruth could speak to him properly. Ruth handed the captain a card. Take him to this address and see that he is put to bed in the guest room to the left of the entryway. Madam, this is a prisoner of the... The captain protested. Ruth cut him off. I know damn well whose prisoner he is because I sentenced him. Do as you're told and take him to the service entrance. Keep him under guard and I will meet you there. The only way to get James to the address was to strap his charred, emaciated body onto the stretcher with helio-injected bands. James was unrecognizable when the guards threw him at her feet. The captain reported that in his bereavement, James spent days ceaselessly throwing himself at the solar-powered bars of his cell. Every square inch of his body was charred, including his face.
His hands were deteriorating, and his fingers were curled, becoming disfigured. His botched-up suicide proved his naivety about being a vampire and would take a proper feed to correct before Ruth could speak to him properly. Ruth handed the captain a card. Take him to this address and see that he is put to bed in the guest room to the left of the entryway. Madam, this is a prisoner of the... The captain protested. Ruth cut him off. I know damn well whose prisoner he is because I sentenced him. Do as you're told and take him to the service entrance. Keep him under guard and I will meet you there. The only way to get James to the address was to strap his charred, emaciated body onto the stretcher with helio-injected bands. The captain doubted that they really needed to take the precaution, making James immobile, but in his line of work he had learned it was better to be safe than sorry. As he drove the van through the dusk-filled streets, he could hear the faint whispers of the prisoner in the back. James was calling for Quinn, asking his forgiveness in his delirium. Most prisoners called for help, or blood, or revenge, but rarely did they call for loved ones, and never did they ask for forgiveness. It just wasn't vampiric. For a moment, the seasoned captain didn't know if he should kill the bastard for his weakness, or respect him for still having some kind of heart, albeit one that was no longer beating. The captain wheeled the gurney into the service entrance and up to the penthouse. It took no effort at all to lift James' feather-light body onto the guest bed and in Ruth's apartment. James thanked the captain, calling him Quinn. The captain was taken aback. He had heard all the rumors swarming around about the trial and the sentencing. Death by light was the harshest sentence. The captain had quietly mourned the death of Quinn. They had been friends for over a century, and he respected Quinn's slowly worded drawl and simple-minded logic. He wouldn't have called Quinn deep by any stretch, but he would have called him loyal, and that was as good a friend as any. Reaching into his pocket, the captain pulled out a secret that he had been carrying. Carefully prying the scorched hand of James open, he gingerly placed the only remnant of Quinn not carried away by wind or birds the treasured medal of honor. Whatever that bitch has planned for you, I have no doubt it'll be a special kind of hell that only Ruth can personally bestow on a victim. Keep this safe. I think he'd want you to have it, the captain whispered to James. James seemed to understand as he gripped it tightly, otherwise lying in misery. The captain left James to his thoughts, stepping outside the room to keep guard as ordered and returned to his duty. It was likely that James would not take a feed willingly, and he certainly was in no shape to hunt. If his mental state was truly that of suicide, then it would take an irresistible temptation for Ruth to intercede effectively. She hit the button on her silver E-class to unlock the doors and jumped in. Hitting the Bluetooth as she left the facility, she made a phone call. Hi, Izzy, it's me. I'm hungry for junk food. Where's a good spot to eat? You know how I feel about junk food. If you don't know what it's been eating and drinking for the last three days, you shouldn't eat it. You were a chef too long before you were turned. Still can't shake the old habits, eh? Ruth mused. Izzy laughed. Principles are the same, whether it's grass-fed beef or fried food-fed human. Why don't you meet me downtown? I've been watching a newly divorced businessman who's been consuming nothing but caviar and $65 bottle Merlot this week. We can share him. Well, it's not for me, actually. It's for a friend, Ruth hedged. 
So you're looking for takeout? Um, in every sense of the word, yes. More like mm, cheap steak and heroin. Boring. Do you hate this friend or is this comfort food? Go with that. Your pairings are always the most challenging. It's been years since I was into street food, though. Let me scout around and I'll call you in 20. Head to the south side docks. I'll meet you. Sure enough, in her eternal pursuit of the ultimate gastric adventure, albeit blood-based, Izzy met Ruth at the dockside bar on the south side of town. Dressed in her typical little black dress and stilettos, Izzy maintained the look of a sexy 20-year-old, even though she had been turned just under a century ago. Ruth beamed with happiness as Izzy tapped the empty seat in the booth next to her. Two prime candidates were already seated across the table from her. Ruth slid into the seat next to Izzy. She set her cell on the table, noticing the carvings made directly into the table's surface. All appearances suggested the marks had been made by knife point. She smiled at Izzy. This place is perfect. I love you. I know. Now, this is Tommy, and this is Mike, Izzy smiled enthusiastically. I was just telling them how my friend and I came into a little bit of money and were looking for a good time and a little pick-me-up. Ruth could smell the rusty stench of heroin already coming out of the pores of the one sitting directly in front of her. His eyelids were lined red and he was real thin. An obvious experienced user. Let me buy you boys some dinner first. Then the adventure begins. Steaks all around? Ruth's suggestion was met with eager enthusiasm. Ironically, both sides of the table felt as though they had hit the jackpot. James was dreaming of Quinn as he lay in the guest bed in Ruth's penthouse apartment. The two of them were laying under a pecan tree in Quinn's southern family estate. As the wind blew gently through the tall, sweet grass, James could smell the honeysuckle in bloom. He could still hear Quinn humming low, some Appalachian tune he always sang as he began to relax. James laid his head on Quinn's chest and breathed in deep. The sudden strong smell of metal and rust filled his nostrils, and James felt the bed move in the blackness of the room. He realized the smell was not of his dreams, but rather of his reality. Two figures were brushing against the bed as James lay silently in the pitch black. As he listened, he could hear the pair kissing. His mind raced. Clearly, someone landed on the bed with a thump. The aroma was getting closer. The familiar smell was overwhelming, and despite himself, James began to salivate. His eyes rolled back in his head as he tried to resist. It had been so long since he had been this close, so close to the two things he desired most next to death. He tried to think of something else. He imagined the pecan tree and Quinn, but all that remained in the forefront of his mind was the ever-growing smell of heroin and blood. Don't fight it, my darling. He's alive for the tasting. Feast before his heart bursts from the overdose, though, Ruth cooed. James dug his blackened nails into the down-feathered duvet, trying to resist. His face contorted nevertheless, and his lips curled to make way for his elongated teeth. Muffled sounds of protest came from Mike, the dockside junkie, as Ruth held him down at the end of the bed. She had her hand over his mouth, Mike was clearly unaware of his situation, but wasn't so high not to sense that he was in some kind of trouble. 
Overwhelmed with grief and starvation, James finally gave in to his hunger and addiction. James found himself in a crouched position ready to pounce. Hunched over Mike, with his burned face and protruding teeth, he was truly a monster. Mike was screaming at the top of his lungs, but Ruth muffled as best as she could to stifle with her fist in his mouth by punching his throat. James sprang on top of Mike and tore open his victim's shirt. He drank directly from Mike's still beating heart. To Ruth's surprise, very little blood found its way to the sheets or to the carpet as James consumed ravenously. She heard the man's bones creak as James bent Mike's body backwards. Mike's pelvis broke at the lower spine when James twisted his body to drink any drug-laced blood that may have pooled in the extremities. As Mike's corpse hit the floor, he was as white as a sheet, and his skin clung to the bone for lack of moisture. When James was finished, the wounds around his mouth and his eyes began to heal. James stared at Mike's broken, drained body in the darkness. His chest heaved, and he began to sob. Ruth rubbed the top of James' head much like an owner to a dog. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. You've come full circle, and now it's time to honor Quinn, and I have the perfect way for you to do it. When Micah arrived at the hospital in Auckland, the outside corridors were swarming with press and fans. Security guards manned every elevator leading up to the fourth floor, where it was rumored that Robbie Davies had just returned from a six-hour surgery. Micah took shelter in the small chapel just outside the lobby. He was beginning to get thirsty after the long night flight, filled with unsuspecting humans. As was his custom, though, he had learned that if he could step away from temptation for even a short while, he could gather his reserve and wait until night fell. Sitting on a bench in the darkest corner of the room, Micah pictured himself peacefully sleeping in his coffin filled with soil from his childhood backyard. He promised himself that he would return for a rest immediately following this little junket. As he sat in a meditation of sorts, he heard the stern voice of a woman giving explicit directions. He slumped down in the bench to go unnoticed as the woman and whomever she was directing approached. Now you listen to me, father. There's too much money riding on this to let scruples get in the way. Robbie doesn't need last rites. He needs to renew his wedding vows in front of the press. That way, if he doesn't pull through, it's very clear who his wife and sole survivor is. It needs to be made clear to his manager, the ball club, and his dirty, poor family. Helen spat. As his wife... Are you not more concerned with the safety of his soul than his money? asked the priest. Micah slunk from shadow to shadow in the chapel until he made his way to the corridor just around the corner. The priest and the woman jumped as he startled them. Oh, sorry, Micah raised his hands in surrender. I was looking for the coffee maker and couldn't help but overhear your conversation. You could hear us? Ellen asked suspiciously. Micah pulled a card from his inside jacket pocket. I'm a licensed barrister, so if you need a wedding with no questions asked, I'm sure we could arrange something, Micah schmoozed. Helen read the card and returned her scrutinizing gaze at Micah. And what sort of payment are you looking for, she asked. The whole world loves your husband, Mrs. Davies. You're the super couple. I wish only that I to, to be of some help, if I can, in any way. As a lawyer and an accountant, I have a few connections. 
but just thinking I might be able to help your husband and yourself would be my honor. Helen smiled. She took off the lanyard hanging around her neck, which held the card reading pass on it. I would be very grateful for your help. Robbie is with his manager, Ray, in room 405. He's just waking up from his surgery. Micah watched as the priest stormed out of the room in frustration. He smiled ever so slightly. As he watched the priest return to the sacristy to prepare for a service, Micah turned to Helen. I'm just going to grab a bite to eat, and then I'll meet you upstairs. You really should be there when your husband wakes. In under an hour, Micah, well-fed on the blood of a holy man, with the priest's body delivered to the hospital incinerator, smoothed out his suit and straightened his tie before walking into room 405. Helen introduced him to Ray, and the two men shook hands while sizing each other up. Impeccable timing smiled down on Micah as the surgeon, looking weary and nervous, pulled off his cap and put it in his scrub's pocket. I know that you requested a meeting before we have to deal with the press. The surgeon stood at Robbie's bedside. He asked Robbie how he was feeling. Robbie joked and asked for a beer. Your spinal cord was so severely damaged in two places, and your right kidney was punctured. Presently, your body is relying solely on your left kidney, which is the only reason I haven't prescribed you a beer. Everyone gave a nervous laugh, and Ray slapped Robbie on the shoulder, jabbing him in good fun. We were able to reconnect many of the severed nerves that go from your spine to your lower legs. You should start to have some feeling restored, or so we hope, by as early as tomorrow. With a lot of physical therapy, I think there is a very good chance you'll walk again. At this, the surgeon smiled, but no one joined him. Helen cried and walked to the window. So what you're really saying, Doc, Robbie sighed, is that my rugby career and days of being an athlete are stuffed. He punched the metal railings of the hospital bed. It wasn't a question. He was simplifying the verdict. What I am saying, the doctor countered, with a good amount of sternness in his voice, is that ten years ago you would have been sentenced to a wheelchair for the rest of your life. But thanks to modern medicine and stem cell research, with some work and a good attitude, you'll be able to resume nearly a completely normal lifestyle. Robbie began to shake his head the way he did when anger was growing inside of him. He started to yell, his face turning beet red. Do you have any idea what normal is for me? Me, Robbie Davies. I've been on a rugby field since I was five years old. Walking isn't good enough. He turned his anger from the doctor onto Ray. You want me to report the news when I just became the news. I finally made it. I had it in my hands, Ray, and now you people expect me to give it up and be thankful that I can bloody walk? More pounding of his fists as Robbie raged on. The doctor left in frustration and soon returned with a syringe. Within seconds of the needle penetrating his IV, once again, Robbie Davies was consumed by oblivion. This time, he didn't fight it. Instead, he gladly welcomed it. Waiting until the room had grown still and Helen had gone home for the night, Micah watched as Ray paced and wrote lists. As he paced, he ran his fingers through his hair and mumbled options and angles to himself. I have to have a plan for when Robbie wakes up. A good plan, he confessed to Micah. That man has never had a day in his life when he wasn't working towards something he wanted. It's how he operates. It's hardwired into his brain. 
If he won't settle for a news anchor job and he won't ever play ball again, I have to think of a way to convince him to what? Coach? Mentor? And the press. We have to give them something. Ray was talking faster and faster as his thoughts raced. Not Robbie. Not now. No. Ray turned to Micah desperately for any advice the quiet stranger can give. Helen? Micah threw Ray a bone. Yes. Yes, Helen. We'll make her carry the image that Robbie is making a great recovery. I'll tattoo a smile on that bitch if I have to. Then we'll call in specialists. Yes, the best the world has to offer. Money will be no expense. Excuse me, I should step away and call my secretary. She needs to start researching the best spinal cord injury doctors. Rail trade off in his thinking out loud. Micah smiled as he walked over to Ray and put his hands on the manager's shoulders. I have a better idea. What I'm about to tell you will be unbelievable at first, but if you let me explain, I might just be the miracle your boy is hoping for. Eternal Kingdom is written by Michelle Roger. This book is edited by Brendan McWilliams. Sound engineered by Steve Nett of Computer Room Services. Graphic novel drawn by Tom Duncan. Music composed, performed, and recorded by Michelle Roger.